welcome to the Soul Deep podcast, where we dive deep into the edges of life where the body meets the soul. Sharing personal stories of struggle and breakthrough, the guests on this show let us know what is up when it comes to healing, happiness, and new heights of pleasure. Welcome back to the Soul Deep Podcast and hello, hello, if you are new, what up? I see you, boo. (laughs) It is your host, Sarah Jane, and in this episode, I talk with Rainier Wild. And yeah, he is just as inspiring as his name would suggest. He is a writer, a teacher, a speaker, a coach, and he works with those who truly long for truth and freedom. He is an intimacy coach, a shadow worker, and he talks about our masculine and feminine energies in a truly awakening and enlightening way. In this episode, he walks us through the archetypes of the masculine and feminine, how they are within us, around us, and throughout culture and time. And we get deep. I share my personal experience of having a mistrust of men and Rainier shares his and walks me through my own feelings too and it was a truly intimate and inspiring conversation and I've listened back to it twice ever since um and yeah I'm so grateful for Rainier Wild um he is a truly wonderful man And I do hope that you both enjoy this episode and take much away from it. I have no doubt that you will. Welcome to the Soul Deep podcast, Rainier. Mm, It's great to be on, SJ. (laughs) The first question I would love to ask you is, what brings your soul to life? Yeah, this is such a a great question. What makes my heart sing? You know, (laughs) I've always said I sold my soul to God and sex a long time ago, (laughs) and it's not far off. Um, I think what I really mean by that, though, is the sacred and the profane, right? The transcendent and the eminent, the, the heavenly and the earthy. And I love them both in equal measure. I mean, I think there's these ordinary moments that are so extraordinarily, painfully beautiful that I can't even breathe sometimes, like tasting the bite of, of burnt toast and, and remembering, you know, my grandmother who delighted in, in having exclusive rights to burnt toast <laughs> and, or seeing, you know, my dog take a a leak on the neighbor's favorite shrub and the accompanying look of glee and shame in its eyes, you know, or, or writing a sentence, like a a sentence of what Hemingway said, one honest sentence, the perfect one, you know, laden with yearning or, 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 or longing or regret the thing that makes someone else feel that they're really there or, or seeing a woman or a man uh, just make a different choice in life. Mm. Uh, one that they haven't done before, where they're standing in new terrain, where they're, they're right there in perhaps even frightening territory 
the kind where there's no up, no down, no right, no wrong. They've just never even been there. They don't even have an idea of where they are. Beauty and terror. I love it all. The, the, the smells, the sounds, the sights, the tastes, all of it. To, to drink really deeply from the world as it is and what the world offers. I, I tell you, I want to die a drunk. I want to hold <laughs> nothing back. I want to drink deep from the world and what it offers. Oh, what an incredible answer, Rainier. I am like, mm, I am on that train with you. I am riding it. I'm getting a lot of, you know, this kind of life experience when the edges are blurred and the veil is thin and we find ourselves in these kind of corners of experience where, you know, all of a sudden the beauty and the, the wonder is just revealed to us. And I often, you know, I wonder if you relate to this when you've had such a beautiful life experience and um, it's really, it's really connected the dots for you. And you have moments of feeling like so whole and so connected to everything connected to source and how source is manifested on, on this planet and, and this experience. And, you know, sometimes we get so lost in our daily routine and our daily kind of life that we look back to those experiences with a huge disconnect. And we, we often feel like, you know, how can I get back there? Whenever, whenever, you know, daily life ticks on and, you know, you find yourself in this kind of strange pattern. Um, I, I was wondering, has that ever showed up for you? You know, I, I, I think of it in a bit of a different way, but I think it highlights the same situation. I think we are so profoundly addicted, hooked into the world of ideas, the idea of what a moment should be, the idea of what being around the house ought to be, the idea of how this job uh, could, could really feel, the idea of who this person in front of me that I'm relating to really should be. We're so addicted to these ideas of, um, of some kind of state of being that we miss what's right in front of our eyes. Mm. I, for instance, you know, it's like, I could ask you, well, what's your idea? Well, what, what's the thing you really want? You have an idea of what you really want. What, what might you say if I ask you that? Like, what do you really want in life? Mm, I want to feel uh, inner an inner joy and fulfillment that is reflected in my external in terms of like career. I know this is really elusive. Is this a good answer? Do you feel me? A, <laughs> I <laughs> definitely feel you. And it's a great answer. And I, I, I think many of us would answer this way. And so what I'd like to just highlight here is that you've right there and what you've just said, like so many of us painted the conditions for what life should be in order to experience it fully. It needs to feel joyful. It needs to feel like connected to source. It, it needs to have these conditions. Now, now here's what's interesting. If it doesn't have those conditions, does that mean you're experiencing any less life, right? Let me, let me render a different example. You know, if I, if I said, what do you really want? And you said, well, I really want to move to the country and enjoy life and have lots of kids and raise chickens and have sheep and all, you know, all these things. Like so many people say these things. That's great. 
that's great. And you say, well, won't that make me happy? And I'll say, absolutely not. Absolutely <laughs> not. Because, because you have an idea. That, that idea has nothing to do with reality, right? And we're willing to stake our lives on ideas that we've never experienced before. And even when we're standing there, because we're so addicted to the idea of it, we won't be experiencing that thing at all. There won't be little sheep. There won't be little chickens. There'll be the idea of chickens. And when, when, a, when a chicken falls over or doesn't lay an egg, we'll be crushed. It didn't match mm -hmm. our idea right? Or when that lamb doesn't give us its wool, or, or maybe I don't even like the taste of lamb when it comes time to eat them. And, and then I get sick and I'm like, oh my God, to hell with this life. I thought it was going to be great. I want to move back to the city. <laughs> and we're, we're never where we really are because we've set these conditions about what life should be, what life needs to be in order to feel alive. But I'll tell you what real aliveness is from my perspective. Real aliveness is standing in the middle of the joy and the sorrow, the push and the pull, the, the, the beautiful and the, and, and the blessed and the disgusting and the degenerate, all of it, and saying, this is life. This is as good as it gets. I'm here right now. I'm not three feet behind. I'm not beside myself. I'm right here in my own skin. Yeah. That's when we begin to experience anything like what I, I think we would call joy, but we almost have to lose the idea of joy, lose the idea of happiness, lose the idea of even hope in order to find those things anew. Preach, preach. Oh my gosh. I, this, that little segment that you just said, I'm going to snip that out and I'm going to keep it so I can replay it and replay it. <laughs> for when I find myself lost. I think that's so beautiful. And, you know, it's so true because the kind of society we live in is so binary. It's, you know, good, bad, right or wrong. You know, this is black or white, but it's all BS truly. And and I love this and I, and I love the work that you do. I love how you kind of really help people create this sense of wholeness. And I would say come back home to themselves. And, you know, I listened uh, to your podcast on the Holy, no, Holy Human podcast. Oh, yeah. um, and it was absolutely stunning. And you've had quite the colorful life. Um, <laughs> absolutely outrageous. And, you know, right now you really work with people um, to forge this intimacy with their inner divine energies, you know, the masculine and the feminine. And, and that's exactly what you've kind of, paraphrase in in that what that experience is like and you also talk a lot about the the shadow side as well so I thought before we go any further shall we lay the groundwork for this episode and really talk about the the baseline energies and the kind of archetypes of the masculine and feminine that inevitably you know kind of create this experience of wholeness within ourselves yeah yeah I think that when we deal with the masculine and the feminine, we're really uh, caught up in this notion of maleness and femaleness, right? And, and, and for good reason, you know, the physicality of being male or being female in these very stereotypical ways we think of maleness and femaleness, were guiding metaphors for traditional cultures when they thought of these archetypes. Mm 
right? They, they looked down at their bodies. They, they, they looked at the physical world outside of themselves and they made these grand sweeping generalizations about how the world worked, right? And they looked up at the sun and, and the moon and, and they looked at plants and they, they looked at all kinds of things. They looked at principles and seasons and, and their own bodies and, and the ways that they related to one another. And they began to notice some things. You know, we've been around on the planet for 350,000 years. Uh, as a species, specifically Homo sapiens sapiens. And during that time, we've learned a lot of things. And I think a lot of those things kind of got passed down in these traditional cultures. So that when we think of these phrases, the masculine and the feminine, it's easy to, to get caught up in what Robert Bly called a noisy literalism. So I'm not talking about maleness and femaleness here. We're not talking about genders, but we are talking about something that uses genders as an analogy for what we're really meaning. And so sidestepping that noisy literalness and getting straight to the heart of the matter about archetypes, we might say that the masculine principle, right? The, the masculine principle for viewing the world is... Um, a way of being directional, focused, assertive, active, deliberate. And that when I or you are standing inside of that, that focused, deliberate, assertive, active presence, when we're standing in that, we're actually operating out of this mode of being that, that has been sometimes called the masculine. Um, there's sort of a leadership orientation. And by leadership, I mean like leading the way, leading the charge um, to this. The feminine, conversely, is a principle by which we would describe receptiveness, openness, yeah. right? This unitive state. It's not hyper-focused. It's not laser-focused. It's, it's instead very, very open, very, very receptive. It's a principle of flow, of ease. Yeah. And so that when I am standing in the feminine principle or archetype, or when you're standing in that, you might notice um, this real sense of delightedness and connection to all that there is in the moment. In fact, I really just talked about that with this idea about union with life. Um, both the masculine and feminine principles connect to the present moment, but they connect in different ways. The feminine principle connects to all that there is right now. It's like I'm in union with, with the tree and I'm in union with, with myself and I'm in union with you and I'm in union with, with, you know, someone 300 years ago and the moon and the sun and the stars all at once. I'm, I'm aware of the totality of what is. And the masculine principle at the same time is also very present and would say, oh, one thing at a time. One thing, what is the next good thing that I shall do well, right? If, if I had to invest myself in one thing in this moment, what could I bring all of my attention to? Yeah. And I like to, to jokingly say this is so illustrated. Again, here we are using these faulty metaphors, but, but I like to illustrate this, you know, in a common metaphor that, that uh, often heterosexual couples kind of jokingly reference, you know, where it's like the female is in this climactic moment. And it's like, she, she's saying, oh my God, 
it's the room and the smells and the sights and the sounds. Oh, it's so incredible. I, I just, I've never felt so good. And she's twirling and she's dancing and she's, you know, the wind is going through her hair and, oh, she is right there. And the masculine is like, yeah, I need your attention. One thing I need, what are we doing right now? Can you please stop talking? Could you please stop twirling? I'm trying to focus here. Right. And, you know, or better yet, he it comes to this moment where he doesn't even think at all. Everything's gone out of his mind. It's emptiness for him. And so the masculine and feminine principles really are emptiness and fullness, emptiness and fullness. And we see those principles play out in so many different things. And those two buckets, this binary, which is really powerfully sewn into the natural world and into each one of us. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking of that meme that's like, uh, what do you want for dinner? And she's like, I don't know. <laughs> but right. um, yeah, I absolutely, I love that. It's such a beautiful description. And, you know, for me, in my journey, um, as a woman living in a kind of like hyper-masculine world, um, it's been really healing to connect with my feminine through my cycle and through, you know, attuning to the different energies, the different feminine energies of my cycle. So mm. if you're familiar with it, there's like four parts to this women the menstrual cycle and first one is follicular and that's like the virgin archetype and then we've got ovulation and that's the mother and then we've got luteal and that's the enchantress and then we've got the menstruation and that's crone but one thing that you know I just cannot help but get frustrated with and that I still see everywhere is so many people who menstruate suffering in their cycle because they are hyper embodying the masculine that it's it's not kind of respecting and it's not surrendering to the natural feminine energy that is within and i also think that this has been so misunderstood like like you kindly kind of illustrated you know i think when we talk about divine energies and feminine energies, we get like a woo-woo alarm. And you think of like the wild feminine as like this crazy living in the bushes woman, like eating bugs. And it's like, nah, like the wild feminine is just one with nature. It's like wild, like wild honey, wild flowers in your garden. It's, it's natural. But I was wondering, you know, considering anyone listening to this podcast who menstruates, and they're really struggling in this masculine world where their energy is changing every single week. Have you got any insight into how balancing out these energies or maybe another way of putting it is dropping into your feminine as to know what she needs in that moment? What would you say to that? Well, first of all, I'm profoundly inadequate to the task that you just laid out in front of me. I've never actually Sorry. menstruated. I've, I've never experienced a cycle. But, you know, as someone who's dedicated a large part of my life to the adoration of women, uh, this is something that, that I have experienced as close as one can, obviously. Mm -hmm. You know, some thoughts on this, on estrus and, and this incredible and interesting uh, experience that, you know, over half the world's population seems to have. Now, there was a time um, not too long ago that anthropologists tell us that it wasn't men who ruled the world. 
it wasn't men who dictated the, the times and the places and the dates. It was rather something very interesting. It was often women. Mm. Women who were given a, and, and held, they weren't given, they held a great position of power. In fact, we know that the majority of human history was spent roughly in tribal band societies that were either egalitarian or female led. Um, and when they were in these uh, band societies, one of the things that was a guiding force was the necessity of listening to women for the hunt, for when to hunt. Now, let me explain. So often the mystery of the feminine cycle is aligned with the moon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My partner, for instance, her cycle uh, always occurs with a full moon. In fact, when a moon speeds up or slows down uh, in its position, she will speed up or slow down where she is in the cycle, right? Just to align with that full moon. It's really a, an incredible thing to watch. So, you know, it, it might even appear irregular if we didn't take into account the moon. <laughs> and of course, in these tribal and band societies, first of all, I want us to notice that in modern society, we're kind of weirded out by that anyway. We're like, wait, how is it that your body and the moon are aligned? That's yeah. weird. Like, yeah. that's just weird anyway. Like we could, there's <laughs> not a really great scientific explanation behind it there's not there's not really a lot of literature that talks about this like it is bizarre so now i want us to like backtrack a hundred thousand years and we're sitting around a campfire and and you know someone kind of looks over at someone else and says yep gonna be a full moon tomorrow and we're like wait how do you know that how, how in the world did you come upon that conclusion well i've started bleeding what <laughs> right i mean it's it's this very bizarre thing. I think that my ancestors and your ancestors not only would have been weirded out by it, I think we would have been awestruck. We would have gone, oh my God, you're mm -hmm. in line. You're attuned to the gods. Mm -hmm. You're attuned to nature itself. You're a messenger speaking of divine mysteries. We need to listen to you. And so in that moment, they would, they would listen. They would have experienced a profound reverence for these individuals. And then we would have not only listened to them, we probably would have been very practical. Oh, so there's a full moon tomorrow. Interesting. Well, if we're going to go out and hunt the big game, or if we're going to go out and have an attack by moonlight on the neighboring tribe, we probably should coordinate with this person who can predict accurately when the moon is going to be at its fullest. Right. And so it was actually the females who were the great commanders of the hunt, the females who often were most associated with sociologists and anthropologists believe to have been associated with when even to go to battle. Mm -hmm. This is actually why some of the most ancient mythological presentations of women are of bloodthirsty goddesses right sometimes people think this is an unnecessary male or patriarchal vilification of females, right? Like why are so many, in fact, almost all of the most ferocious uh, deities, goddesses, right? Like you think of the Celtic, the Morrigan, who is just, I mean, we literally get the word nightmare 
from a translation of her name. Um, why does she exist? Or, or why does the Egyptian goddess, whose name I, I, I think literally translates, um, I will bathe in the blood of my enemies, and I will <laughs> soak the sands with their blood. I mean, like, these are like, bizarre and intense and very, very uh, elaborate ways of talking about the bloodthirstiness of, of well, females. So is this just a vilification that, that males were kind of like writing into the stories? Well, you know, some anthropologists don't think that way. Some mm -hmm. anthropologists look at that and go, actually, it's noting something. It's noting that in a time before time, in a time before written history, we actually based our experiences of the hunt and war off of where the female told us to go. Mm -hmm. When she bled, there was a hunt. When she bled, there was a battle. We followed her lead. So I, I, I want to just pause then and say, what an amazing historical place to put estrus, menstruation, to put, to put this process, that there was a moment not too long ago that took up far more history than we've lived in in recorded civilization, that actually there was a primacy given mm -hmm. to, to that experience that unifies women all over the world. Now, we don't experience that today. <laughs> the world doesn't move at that speed anymore, you know? And one of the things that's happened is and, and has been profoundly um, frustrating for, for countless generations of women is not only do they lose that place of primacy, but they were kind of shoved off into the, to the outer regions of the camp, right? So much so that in you know, the, the Hebrew tradition in their coded laws, which I think represents largely a lot of the, the Middle Eastern or the Near Eastern laws of the time, you know, it's like if, if a female during estrus touched, you know, touched someone or something, that thing should be burned. <laughs> and that person was unclean. I mean, they were very elaborate, right? It became this profoundly unclean thing. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the greatest innovations that's freed females is actually something that I don't, I don't know if it's great. I don't know if it, but is, is the innovation of, of things such as, um, hygienic, hygienic inventions that have allowed females not to be relegated to the, to the hidden corners of their house or some outskirts camp tent, you know, like, but enable them to simply go and now be a part of the world. And, and the world isn't worried about that. Not that the world should be worried about that. That's, that's what I want to say. It's ridiculous that the world is profoundly worried. And I think it highlights our, our addiction to puritanism. This idea that things must be tidy and orderly and clean and neat, and just so. And we're frightened of the mud and the blood and the dirt and the grime, frightened of all those things. And of course, this is one of those things that we don't understand, can't connect to, and are afraid of. Yeah. So uh, perhaps hear me say, one, it's a profound mystery. I think it's a mystery to just about everyone I know. Two, it's, it's so awe-inspiring. And then three, I think there are some practical implications. Now, I just want to take all of that as a baseline to just say how I relate to it in the, in the human beings that I encounter who are experiencing that. I listen to what happens to them when they bleed. Because there is a decompensating effect. They experience a, a, a rush of connection to 
greater emotions, to greater sensitivity to certain thoughts. In my experience, thoughts that usually plague them, but they put in the, in the distant regions of their mind, now come to the forefront even louder. They can't avoid them. So I actually think that moment in the cycle of a female is of profound importance. And when my partner says, you know what really annoys me when she's on her, uh, on her cycle, you know, instead of going, oh, you're just, you're, you know, you're just having a bleed. Instead of saying that, I go, ooh, I'm listening. Like I'm all ears because now I'm probably going to get something that's a little more raw, a little more revealing, right? That's going to actually bring that forward. So I try and pattern myself off of that, that ancient and age old principle when the men of the tribe would turn around under the full moon and listen to their women and say, please, what's your experience? Oh my gosh. I am just covered in truth tingles. Yes. That is such a, that's such a beautiful way to connect with your partner. And my gosh, you are a fountain of knowledge. Is there just like textbooks built inside your brain? Like, <laughs> but incredible. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I really, I really vibe with this. And, you know, it's something I talk about a lot with the lunar cycle, you know, depending on who you are, if you do want to embrace more of your feminine look at the moon and see what she's doing and like attune to her in that way. But to tell you like one thing that's been really empowering for me, because I think you'll like this because it's definitely on par with the kind of work that you do in terms of like shadow side and the light side and whatnot. I have lived like for so long in a victim mentality of being a woman you know and especially in this like patriarchal system where I'm like oh like how am I supposed to operate in this corporate world how am I supposed to be in this industrialized civilization when I'm bleeding when my energy changes every week and this kind of thing and I've always kind of had that woe is me until there was like a certain turning point in the past two years and I really wanted to get to grips with my um sacred cycle and I had followed uh the lunar cycle for quite some time at this point but it still was not giving me that empowerment so i went into uh the more biology of it and i married that with the archetypes and i find that through the biology changes um you know one of the resources i had was elisa vitti's book called in the flow and she's a mm. she's a doctor and um i realized hang on a sec am I actually at an advantage here? I changed from victim into, I'm going to biohack my body so that I can capitalize and maximize on every single opportunity that I find myself in within this world. So for example, mm. follicular phase, virgin phase, I feel my energy shift and I'm like, I'm ready to try new things, explore new ideas. Let me maximize in this to profit my life. Then we go into mother phase and it's like, right, in my business, I'm going to go mother my ideas. I'm going to nurture whatever it is. Like right now I'm entering that phase and my podcast is like forefront of my mind. I'm like, how can I mother this? What does my baby need, so to speak? 
And then we go into enchantress phase, which is my favorite one because I'm like, ooh, girl, I am going to get the honey. I am going to get what I need because I have got that like sexy, bendy, fluid, like flowy energy in that first week of that phase. And then what I have done for the past year, and it has been the most healing thing is when I am bleeding, my social diary is blanked out. I do not see my friends. I do not have a phone call. Like I am inward. And the revelations that has that have, you know, come forth from that have been so healing. Um, and I think it it really comes down to that. How are you relating to this experience and that kind of shadow side of the the victim mentality versus the the light? I don't know. How would you put it? The Yeah. Well, I just, I want to comment on what you just said. That is a profound example of moving from a disempowered place to one of full responsibility for your life, mm. right? It, now, I, I think that that what you just shared probably highlights where in one way or another, whether it's that illustration, that experience, or, or so many others, people get stuck, and, and, and not, not just, um, certainly not just females and certainly not just around this issue, but just people in general, we get stuck there, right? That something happened to me, something's unique to me, something's mine. Uh, it makes me feel a certain way. It takes away my, my energy. It takes away my, my ability to interact in the life that I want. And now what? Well, now I'm, I'm going to, be angry about it. I'm going to be uh, really pissed off. I'm going to be bitter. I'm going to complain a lot. Right. And I want you to think about like relationships, like just shifting the frame just a little to relationships. This happens a lot in relating, right? I certainly have done it. You know, like she doesn't reach out to me enough. She, she doesn't communicate care enough. Um, she doesn't really take time to ask about my day. Why is she so selfish? Why is she so narcissistic and self-oriented? Why, why doesn't she ever think about me when she makes plans? Right. And I, I think of, well, maybe it's just because I, I, uh, I don't speak up for myself enough. You know what? My parents taught me that. Uh, God, had I only had parents who would have taught me to advocate for myself, had I only had experiences that reinforced self-efficacy, had I only had, you know, a teacher who would have taken interest. You know what I hate about schooling? Schooling really just doesn't even um, propel people towards success. It just indoctrinates and brainwashes. Oh, I hate schooling. And of course, here I am today. And I just want my partner to communicate to me. But Everything that's ever happened in my life has taught me not to communicate to my partner and taught them to, to in fact, uh, belittle me. And here I am. And I just, my relationship sucks. <laughs> no, I mean, like so many of us have lived there, right? Okay. Oh, so let's just... Yeah. I'm just, I'm just clicking. Yeah. Big relate. <laughs> right now. Now let's just take that and say, all of that's true. Okay. So what? And, and I mean that actually not disparagingly, but so what, like what now, what's that all mean? Because I, in fact, have a choice. This is my one wild and precious life. It, it, it literally is my life. I, I only have one. It's not a practice life. It's, it's not like the first pass, right? Um, 
I choose to look on this life as extraordinary and unique. Now, this is the time I have. So I can sit here and talk about those things. Or if a man does not like his history, write a new one. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the invitation, right? So rather than complaining about my partner and, and what she does or doesn't do, I can change the dynamic, right? I can, I can actually advocate. I don't know how. Okay, does anybody? Really? I mean, like, I can take a master class on advocacy, but actually, like, class never teaches you how to play tennis. You got to get out on the courts and play tennis, yeah. right? Relating actually doesn't come with a textbook. That's the funny thing about relationships. I always think like, right. Like there's, you know, on any given day, 3000 relationship books that might appear on my feed that I need to read about relationships. But I look around the whole world and I see pretty much the same state of relating that William Shakespeare talked about 500 years ago. It's like not much has changed, mm-hmm. right? We still relate in these incredibly broken, blaming, victimized ways. Rather than saying, okay, what do I want to do with this? What am I willing to take responsibility for? What am I willing to give of myself in this moment? By the way, you may actually figure out once we stop, once I stop, this has certainly been true for me. Once I stop pointing my finger at them and trying to get the situation to be different, once I accept full responsibility for my life, I may find that this relationship actually just doesn't work for me. Oh, yeah. Right. And then I may have to actually make a hard decision. Well, how do I make hard decisions? Well, you just do them actually. Right. (laughs) That's how you, that's how you do it. And life is really just a steady series of one foot in front of the other. I have got a lump in my throat. I am like so emotional hearing that because I relate to it so hard and it's so true. It's so true. We forget so often that free will is a thing and we look for so many reasons to validate our painful experience and our whatever mentality that we find ourselves in because it's comfortable and like expansion is as painful as it is orgasmic right it's 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 not this easy flick of a switch hang on let me just make a choice like it feels uncomfortable and it's it's getting comfortable with the uncomfortable and it's so true like if if you don't do anything then nothing's gonna change and you know no two journeys look the same but I I really feel that what you've said and I and I feel that like dropping into the body and listening to your own narrative what is what is the story that you're telling yourself and and creating here and is it true or is it is it fixed yeah I, I really, really feel that. And oh my gosh, I'm just emotional. Mm, I know this is a juicy episode, my friends. And if you're vibing, go ahead, take a screenshot, upload it to your story and tag Soul Deep Podcast so I can see. And if possible, leave a review on whatever platform you're streaming from. This really helps the podcast grow, reach more people and connect like-minded souls. And if you want to go even deeper, become a Soul Deep patron for as little as £1.11 per month, where you'll get access to exclusive Soul Deeper sessions with the guests on this show, where we spill juicy tea 
and give you free love, guidance and advice. Search Soul Deep Podcast on Patreon and join the community. So I spoke to you about this before the podcast briefly. And, you know, this journey has been long and treacherous and I've taken many different paths when it comes to really connecting with my own divinity and and energies to kind of have this whole experience of life. And I guess, to be honest, just not to be triggered, right? Like I hate being triggered and I'm doing all this work now on getting overcoming my triggers because it's a clear indication of work that needs to be done. But something that's coming up for me a lot is a mistrust of men. And, you know, just for as an example, this podcast, right? I'm interviewing, having conversations with men on this podcast. And I didn't realize it was such a big thing until I started it. And I was like, my heart was going. And like my first episode with him, with a guy, I was like, da, 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 da. and like, I don't know what to say. And like, all of a sudden, I noticed myself being quieter. And, you know, not like feeling, feeling inadequate. And realizing okay all right where is this coming from and obviously you know nothing new here I am a woman with previous trauma related to men uh, there's reason for this experience there's reason there's reason for this trigger but that is not happening in the present moment and I and I actually really looked at this and seen how insidious it was in terms of like how I was projecting this in all areas you know just walking down the street I see a man and I'm like don't make eye contact, like all this kind of thing. And I want to bring this up because, well, first of all, yes, I'm being super vulnerable, but I know that I am not the only person. And I also know that there's men who also don't trust men. And I think, you know, it's just, it's just a whole thing. And I would love to know, what would you have to say about this? Like overcoming this mistrust of men. What a great question. And you know, when you and I were talking about this, you, you mentioned the word nervous, right? That there's kind of a nervousness that comes over you or, or that particularly in relationship to talking to men. Yeah. And so one thing I, I want to say that, that you've already said is, you know, you didn't invent nervous, right? You didn't invent nervous in relationship to men. Like that's actually not common to you. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think of this sort of like a rainstorm, you know, it's like you go out into a rainstorm and you get wet, right? But that rainstorm isn't very personal. <laughs> it's raining on everybody. And you just <laughs> happen to get very personal with that, that water in that moment. And this is the same thing. You didn't invent nervous. Nervous is a condition of human beings, right? Not knowing what you're going to say next or, or maybe even going inward is not unique to SJ, right? This is actually a condition of being a human being. And you are experiencing it very, very personally, right? And you connect it with certain thoughts. And you connect it with certain feelings that seem very, very relevant and exclusive to you. And then you begin to develop a belief about it. Like, well, God, I'm the one who's nervous here. I'm the one who's having this experience. And, and I would just say, well, first of all, it's such a common thing mm. to experience these things. 
and not just in relationship to men. I want you to know that before I came on, I had sweaty palms. I might even still have sweat. Yeah, I still have sweaty palms right now. I'm nervous talking to SJ. Right? And that doesn't have to do so much with many things. I, I have some thoughts about what it has to do with. And, and those thoughts connect to some emotions that I'm feeling right now. And those, those emotions actually connect to some stories that I tell, some stories that are, are much larger than, than even me or you that, that are, are very old. Again, like a rainstorm. I walked into them. And I got wet. I didn't make those things up. I mean, you and I showed up late to a party that had already been started. And that party is called being human, right? <laughs> Nervousness is one of those things that is wrapped up in being human. So I want to start there. And then I'd like to actually just shift the frame again, just a little and talk about an experience that happened to me just the other day, if that's okay. And I think this will shine some light. The other day I noticed I felt very sad I had this emotion called sadness that occurred in me and I noticed it and I wondered what's that about? And then I noticed that I had all kinds of thoughts populating my mind. What is this about? Well, and, and really they all centered on the relationship I have with my family of origin and how I had discovered that they were getting together, having these encounters with each other that I wasn't invited to. And I have some older siblings and they were doing things together that, that I wasn't a part of. And, and I was left out. There were those thoughts right there. I'm being left out. I'm, I'm being neglected. And then there was a, a, a set of thoughts associated with that, that. And I shouldn't be. I deserve not to be neglected. You know, I've earned a right. I'm, I'm 41 years old. I deserve to be included in things. I'm not a baby anymore. I'm not, I'm not the baby of the family anymore. Surely they can see I've grown up here. I'm, a, I'm my own man. They should, they should include me. And then, of course, the more I thought that, the more badly I felt. Like, my God, can't they see? And, and this feels just absolutely shitty, right? All these things cascading. And, of course, then there, there was, if I followed that track a little further back, a large rain cloud, like a story. And that story was, they should include me. And I am not being included. Mm -hmm. Right. And that, that rain cloud, that, that story that exists in my life exists, not just there, but lots of places in my life. I can see that when I, when I have friends who might get together for a fire circle and they don't invite me and, and, and there it goes again. That story that says you should be included, you weren't, you're left out. My God, that story exists in numerous places in my life. Okay, that's interesting. So now I'm following that story. Wow, that rain cloud shows up in a lot of places. And then suddenly I had a funny little cold breath of fresh air. It came in the form of a memory that disturbed the whole storyline. No more than two weeks before the sad set of feelings and these thoughts and this story, my partner had said, hey, what do you want to do for your birthday? You know what I told her? I said, anything but hang out with my family. Because <laughs> the truth is, 
I don't really love hanging out with my family. It's not the funnest thing in the world for me. I don't want to spend a happy day hanging out with them. I mean, it's just not my preference. Nothing wrong with them. It's just not where I want to be. It's not the party I want to throw. But here I am having this very sad, mopey experience attached to this story. And then I realized it. I realized that I wasn't telling that story. That story was telling me. I wasn't thinking those thoughts. Those thoughts were thinking me. I wasn't feeling those feelings. Those feelings were feeling me. And here's, I'm going to even deepen that thought and just say, there was a, there was a story, a story that got its hooks into me. And as soon as I consented to that story landing on me, I started to think those thoughts and have those feelings, even though I don't even think that I don't even feel that. The thoughts and the feelings I was having weren't my thoughts and feelings. They were its thoughts and feelings. They were its experiences. And it used my memories. It used my context. It used my relationships to tell its story. And that story is being left out. I didn't invent the story being left out. It's out there in the ether. And I picked it up like Velcro. And suddenly I had its thoughts and its feelings living out in me. Mm. You've got a story called nervous and you didn't invent that story called nervous. But the minute you consented to that story unconsciously, it got its thoughts and its feelings into you. And it used your experiences. It used your relationships. It used your moments to tell its story. And it's a pretty elaborate one. And you're having all of its feelings. It's not even your feelings and thoughts. It's not even your nervous. It doesn't belong to you. Yeah. Click. <laughs> so I'm just wow. wondering, SJ, how does that land with you on hearing that, that, that you might actually be having an experience that that isn't even really your own experience. Mm. It's really interesting because, you know, hearing, hearing that emotions do come up for me. And what's really interesting is I love, I love how you give the example of your story and change the frame of it into mine because it makes it much more relatable. And actually what came up for me was, it's interesting that I, I kind of have pinpointed to the beginning like of this new chapter of this same story. And it was, it was just before the podcast launched, maybe a week or two before. And I was walking down the street and it happened to be sunny here, a rare occurrence in the UK. And um, it was really sunny and I was wearing like a little top and shorts or something. And I had a man like pull down his window and like point at me, even though he was driving, he took his eyes off the road, point at me and like shout something. And I didn't actually make out what he said, but it sounded like really aggressive. And he was like staring right at me. And it was like maybe a form of catcalling or telling me to put on some clothes or something like this. And 
it really, really shocked me. It really, really shocked me. And I was with my partner at the time and he, you know, he had a, quite a big reaction to it as well. He immediately went to like, oh, you don't know what he said. Like, don't worry. He maybe wasn't even shouting at you. And I was like, no, he was shouting at me. He looked me dead in the face. I know he was shouting at me. And then we got inside and my partner's wonderful. He like created some space. He was like, let's talk about what just happened. And I was like, no, it's fine. I was like angry and I was feeling the emotion. And he was like, no, let's really talk about what just happened. And I just started to cry because my, because this, I'm still taking ownership over it. You see that? Because this narrative is something I've had for a really long time where it's any encounter I have with a kind of man, I see it as he wants to get something out of this situation. He wants to get something out of me or he wants to like, kind of use me as an objective thing to like catcall or like place his judgments upon and whatnot. And I realized, you know, when, when this happened, I very quickly jumped to, I just don't trust men. Like this happens to me all the time. Like this is like, I just cannot trust men. You know what I mean? And then obviously I'm talking to my partner who is a man and he's like, okay. And I'm like, I trust you though. Cause you're awesome. And I really, really like you, but I just cannot trust other men. And like, there's, there's just a clear discrepancy here because if I can trust one man, I can trust another. And also I have three older brothers and I feel fine with them. I love my brothers and I probably, you know, subconsciously put them on a pedestal. Um, so they're safe for me. And Harry, my partner, is safe for me. But when it comes to other men, I quickly just buy into that narrative, you know? And it's really nice the way that you give your example because it's kind of debunked it a lot for me. And actually, it's really taken the pressure off letting go because I think a big part of this is that I, uh, I also like attach a bigger meaning to the mistrust of men in the form of like all women, you know? and you know, other women who feel this way. I'm like, I cannot trust men on behalf of all women. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I, but yes, wow. that's, that's what came up for me. And mm. yeah, I feel like hearing you, there is such a big distance between that now. And, I, and it, it's made it easier to take off that narrative and to lift it off. I just want to pause and just say, I'm sorry that happened. Mm. Right. And, you know, we might not even know what happened, right? Harry's comment in that moment, well, you don't know what he said. That, that's technically true. It doesn't take away the, the felt experience of it, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, that felt experience connects to, to these narratives. You know, one of the ways we know that a story has us, as opposed to us having a story, one of the ways we know it's a story operating is that regardless of the facts, <laughs> we still like get pushed around by a feeling in that moment. Like we know we're, we're in the hands of a big, powerful story, right? Once like we can't even challenge facts or that won't shift our perspective, right? It just is. We're just kind of being carried along by the current there. I think that situation that you said, how painful, like, I think anybody can relate to that. Gosh, I, now, now let me tell you, if, if somebody rolled down their window and I was wearing a cute, you know, like small top and, and, you know, walking down the street as I might, you know, um, <laughs> and my beard is looking especially on point and somebody pulls over and, 
and rolls down their window and yells something at me, you know, the first place my mind goes to wouldn't necessarily be the same place your mind goes to. And if I didn't exactly hear what they said, I, I wouldn't think the same things you think. Mm. But I certainly would interpret it how I would interpret it. And mm. it probably wouldn't be pleasant. Mm-hmm. It'd be like, what's wrong with me? You know, what did I do? Right. And then I'd start to get real angry at them. And <laughs> I'd probably do a character assessment very quickly and, and <laughs> spend the next, you know, 24 hours fuming. Right. Yeah. That's, that's very easy. So what I want to just say is you, you, you can see how easily we, we do that, but it doesn't take away the pain of that experience. Mm-hmm. So really one of the things that is very effective that you did is just to actually allow that emotion to cycle through you. Like don't feed it. Right. Don't, don't pour more fuel onto it, mm-hmm. but, but actually just allow it to kind of cycle through you. I feel anger. I'm noticing the anger. Oh, the anger. Where is the anger? Well, it's God, it's in my chest. I feel like there's a fire breathing dragon that's just coming out of the middle of me, whatever it is. And we get very descriptive. We really, really become mindful of the present emotion Mm. and allow it to absorb through us and pass through us. And then it might be effective to come back and say, well, I wonder what the facts were. I wonder if I could actually notice what I know. And of course, then we say, gosh, well, I don't know this and I don't know that. But I do know that I had this thought. I know that that's a fact. I had the thought that blank. I had the thought that blank. That's a, that's a fact. And so we begin to describe not only our feelings, but then the thoughts, the things that we can observe with our five senses. By the time we do that, something really remarkable usually begins to happen for most people. We usually kind of settle into an experience of the here and now, mm-hmm. like we begin to notice ourselves, And especially if we're in a, a, a safe space, a space where we feel held and known and seen, just like you were in that moment. I want to point out something that you said that was so incredible. You said, well, as I began to think about it, I looked over at my partner and I, I said, well, I trust you. And I, I, I trust my brothers. Um, what's so interesting is that we go through life really as, as I'll use that word you used earlier, as victims of these large narratives. Mm-hmm. And we always know that there's a, a story at work working on us when we use words like always and never and everyone and all, mm-hmm. <laughs> because Actually, it just isn't even true. Mm-hmm. In fact, you're sitting here with me. You're going, well, that's not actually true. That's not, that's not real. <laughs> it's not all men. It, it probably isn't even most men. Actually, if you're, I mean, like, I don't know what your experience here is with me. Maybe you think I'm catcalling. Maybe there's a story that's, I don't know. But my guess is probably not. My guess is we're relating. We're connecting. You might even feel something like safe. I've never met you before, but, but here we are. And we're having a decent, good time with one another. Mm-hmm. And, and so, well, there's that. So what we might even say is that, well, I have a lot of experiences where I don't trust men. And then I have a lot of experiences or I have experiences where I do trust men. And what is that about? Well, actually the truth is it's just about what it's about. Mm. That's all. I have mm. some experiences where men are real assholes. And I have some experiences where men are real decent folks. 
It is what it is. I don't have to make a pattern out of it. And better yet, the story doesn't have to tell me. Right. Mm -hmm. Most of us are owned by the story. The story owns us. And like a character, we get moved around by the story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. I feel like I have been wrapped up in a blanket of a narrative asleep and you just gently rocked me awake. <laughs> mm -hmm. Honestly, I feel a super expansion on the back of that. And it is, it is, it is so true. And, you know, when you talk about like, you know, you're going to have experiences where you do trust men, experiences where you don't, like all of a sudden I'm just thinking of all the men that I do trust and like all the beautiful relationships I've had with men where they didn't have any bad intentions. And I'm like, huh, isn't it funny how I forgot about that? Like, isn't it funny how when I really, really owned one narrative that I was blind to, you know, the actual truth outside of it, which takes shape in, you know, different feelings that I've had at different points in my life. And I think that that's such a, a wonderful kind of expansion to have, to let go of a narrative. And, you know, as someone who does like quite a, quite a lot of work in terms of like interpersonal development, I, I cannot help but, but notice the little things that that hinder that hinder this kind of realization such as like that little gratitude or sorry yeah gratitude and that gratification that we get out of these narratives because it really validates like it validates the ego the ego's way of being like yeah girl you can't trust men blah blah, blah. and it's like oh, okay I feel like a sense of like yes to this and it gives me purpose to be angry when maybe anger has been something that's been quite detached from me and I need to harness it in some way so let me use this story to connect with my anger let me use like this scenario in this way which I know a lot of it it does happen subconsciously but I think this is the beautiful thing about the work that you're doing and how how you've kind of changed the frame of what is a similar scenario because it brings forth these subconscious kind of realizations and these knowings of this small gratification. And I'm super grateful. I'm super grateful for you. Well, I, I, I just want to take a moment and just say how, how appreciative I am that you laid that out. That, that is a really powerful articulation of, of what happens. I think anytime we begin to to become storytellers. And that's just it. For the most part, the story tells us, right? You said we get, we get um, motivated by things. Mm -hmm. Increasingly, I sort of think about it like, um, like there's a real big movie production coming through town and they're looking for a character. They're looking for an actor to play a character. And they say, hey, we'll pay you in feeling good uh, and feeling like you're justified and in the right and feeling like you're going to win and feeling like you're in control. That's how we'll pay you. Will you sign on to, to this story? And you say, hey, that's great. I, I want to win. I want to be in control. I want to look good. I want to be right. Wow, that's great. I'll, I'll sign on. And then we go, okay, this is a cool story. And now suddenly you're playing a part. You're scripted. You've been cast in the movie and here you are reading the script. And, and the problem that so many of us face is that 
the, the payment, the, the payoff that we get out of it isn't really adequate um, to what it promised. Like actually looking good and being right and feeling justified about things and winning and avoiding being controlled actually doesn't make us feel happy. It, it doesn't at all. It just makes us feel like we won, <laughs> makes us feel like we were in control and makes us feel like we look good. But that didn't get us happiness. That just got us those things. Those things can't make you happy. They're not wired to make you happy. They just help you feel like you won. And so we play that character over and over and over. It's scripted us. But then there comes that moment when what you just did happens and we stop being an actor. We stop being a character in someone else's movie and we become the producer where we decide where we want to invest our money. We decide what story we want to tell with our time and our attention. We become storytellers as opposed to having the story told through us. And that's a really powerful thing when I can actually choose how I wish to narrate my life. You know, I use stories a lot. And someone said, how can you tell people not to use stories? And I say, I don't tell people not to use stories. I tell people to know the stories they tell. Otherwise, the stories use them. Right. I tell a lot of stories today because I know they're just stories. Like they're just stories. I'm not attached to them. I'm not identified with them. I don't think they're reality. They're just stories, stories of my life. And I'm always uncovering those stories. Primarily what I see myself as is a storyteller, inviting people to tell their stories. And something in that gives them a great degree of hope and, and openness and, and even clarity and freedom. And I think that's, that's really beautiful and valuable. I also just want to backtrack on one thing and just say, you know, this isn't about suppressing someone's experience. For instance, I said nervous and like, mm -hmm. well, we're all having nervous and, and, you know, this is just a story. So, okay. Pause. Gosh, if I'm walking by uh, an alley that's dark and well-known for having many murders and robberies, I'm going to feel nervous. Mm -hmm. Listen to your emotions, folks. <laughs> They're saying something. It doesn't always mean, though, that what they're saying is something you have to listen or you have to act on, right? You listen to them, you hear them. And so a lot of people think, well, this is about like suppressing the things that are the, no, 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 no. Don't listen to the story. <laughs> the story is, the story is just feeding you the same old scripted mechanistic stuff, but really do listen to your experience. There's truth in your experience. Your experience is real and true and you can trust it over time. In fact, I'm saying the very opposite of don't listen. I'm saying, listen, really listen, not to the story. Know that it's a story, but listen to actually your experience. So in this case, the experience is, well, I'm having an experience with this particular person that I'm talking to miles away. I'm here in, in the UK, he's there in the United States. And, 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 and I actually feel pretty good right now. This, this feels pretty decent. And I, I feel like this is someone I can trust. And, I, and he feels like he respects me and, 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 and there's a mutuality here. And hmm, okay. I'll listen to that. I don't have to apply a story onto that. Mm. We listen to our experience. Yes, 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 yes. Amen to that. And I think it kind of all boils down to really being connected to that sacred feminine, because, you know, 
that is being in the moment and it is being open and listening and not getting carried away and not getting lost. And I think a big part of it is having that clear self-awareness, you know, where, where does the self become the story or vice versa? Um, and I think, yeah, such a beautiful way to really step out of these narratives and experiences and you are a very incredible man I want to know what what has been the hardest part of your journey slash what has been maybe a narrative for you that took some time to peel to peel off and take the layer off in in your journey and you don't need to go super deep if if it doesn't feel right like I just did but you know whatever (laughs) is in alignment yeah I certainly think I've struggled a lot of my life with a story of being unwanted. Yeah. That's a, a familiar refrain, right? Whether it's family of origin, which, you know, if I was telling my mother that she would be astonished, how could you ever have gotten that? Right. <laughs> um, story of being unwanted circles of friends, right? And of course, nothing they could do would ever make me feel wanted because it's not about their actions at all. It's about this thing that I, I look for this thing, this constant that I always already am seeing, right? Friends, romantic partners, of course, being unwanted means that I'll be left. I'll be alone. I'll be abandoned. And in the end, that aloneness is intolerable. So, you know what I'll do? I'll, I'll leave before they can leave me. I'll make sure that I'm the one who's doing the unwanting, right? So that it doesn't hurt so bad on and on. I think that story has been reinforced a lot of times um, and has become a self-fulfilling prophecy in many times. And I think uh, across the years, what I've realized is I'm simply the constant. The variables change, but I'm the constant in this equation. And I'm the one projecting that story. And it's been a very painful story. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, um, maybe a, a more intimate story, a more intimate truth here that uh, recently happened actually was with my own father. Um, and it was an interesting experience. I realized that I hadn't, um, I hadn't heard praises from my father around a a number of accomplishments and it made me feel really poorly. And then I noticed, you know, as one does, as they backtrack through these stories that, wow, this is, this has actually been a, a, a pretty familiar and consistent thing in my life. And, it's really impacted me. And then I noticed that there was this, there was this particular narrative that existed, a particular expectation. Not only um, do I feel as though he hasn't been proud of me, but I feel like he should. I have an expectation that I deserve my father's pride. Mm. Yeah. It was a story that was not only owning me, but owning him. You know, I really can't control my father's behaviors. I can't control those aspects of someone else. 
but I can control the stories I tell. So I wanted to let you know that I called him. I called him. And I said, Dad, a lot of my life, I've had a feeling that you're not very proud of me. And it's really prompted me to do things that would make you proud. And so I went to college to make you proud. And I got a, a master's degree so I could make you proud. And I became a something so I could make you proud. And I had a family so I could make you proud. And I did all these things to make you proud. And a lot of my life, I felt like no matter what I did, you were never proud. And that's caused me a great degree of pain. I said, and what I realized is I have a story that you need to be proud of me. And I want to let you know, I release you from that burden. I release you from the weight of the expectation that you need to be proud of me. Wow. I allow you to just be you. <laughs> Needless wow. to say, he didn't really know what to say. I was going to say, didn't. how did he receive that? <laughs> uh, he had no clue how to respond. And, <laughs> and actually, he, he, he felt very defensive in that moment. And he, he said, you know, I, I don't want to argue with you. Kind of got real riled up. Like, I don't want to argue with you. I'm not going to argue with you about this. And in that moment, I felt incredibly light. I felt magnanimous. Before I tell you how I responded in that moment, I want to backtrack to being 16 years old and standing in a different room with my father. I was watching the American TV show Friends, and I came from a very conservative family, and my father came down the stairs, saw me watching the show Friends, and got very angry at his son and said, Hey, I've told you not to watch that show several times. And here you are doing it. And I protested. I said, I'm going to watch it. I was becoming my own person in that moment. Mm -hmm. And he thought I was still a boy. And then he also thought it was okay to manhandle me. Now at that point in time, I had a good mm, four inches and a hundred pounds on my dad. He's a really small man and I am not. And so he, he grabs my shoulder, right. To kind of force me to do something. He's going to force me away from the TV or whatever. I don't know what he was thinking. And I did a very grown-up thing. I instantly pushed him away, both my arms, propelling him away from me. And he's pretty slight. And he stumbled backwards and collapsed into a heap. And he looks up at me and he realizes he can't control me anymore. And I look down at him and I realize he can't control me anymore. And I start sobbing and I run upstairs because I've lost my father, my hero. I've, 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 I've committed patricide. I've killed the father in that moment. And I understood it. Skip ahead to this moment I'm telling you about. He says, hey, I don't want to fight with you. Now he's getting big. Oh. You know what I did? I didn't push him. Mm. Instead, I laughed and I said, of course not, dad. There's nothing to fight about. You're my dad. You'll always be my dad. You'll never not be my dad. And I love you. There's nothing to fight about. I just release you to be my dad. In other words, I didn't repeat the past. 
He was just as he was. And we could just relate. I redeemed that storyline in that moment. Yeah. Wow. I have got tears in my eyes, genuinely. That was such a inspiring and really powerful story to share. And it, it definitely kind of illustrates, it illustrates you in your authenticity. And I think it's also, it's also kind of shows, shows us how, you know, as we go throughout life, you know, we, we're not just living in our own self, but we have got so many connections, intimate connections, family connections, and there's so much at play in this web of life, you know? And I think one thing that's just so beautiful is how you living in authenticity and doing the healing in that moment, such as calling up your dad, telling him that story that was undoubtedly super uncomfortable for him and probably quite uncomfortable for you too, was you in your authenticity and in your, in your essence and in your divinity. And, you know, through that, in a sense, you, you weren't literally just like freeing your dad, like in the way that you said, but you literally were because how he then related to you had to come from an authentic place, albeit it was through initially through that kind of pattern from, you know, related back to whenever you were 16 and, and, you know, the fear, but then in that moment of consciousness, you were like, yeah, we don't have to fight about it. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that was, wow. That was complete like consciousness. That was very, very, you know, that was like your highest self coming through. Really, really inspiring. Thank you for creating this space to let me share that, SJ. I have one more question that I ask every guest on this show. And it is, if you could give your younger self any advice, what would it be? Mm, don't be afraid of embracing life, really embracing it. Not just the good stuff, not just the sunsets and the mountaintops, all of it the gutters, the basements, don't hold yourself back, plunge, inhabit yourself as a self. Yeah. Respond to the command of life. Live. Mm, delicious. Oh, I've loved this episode so much. Thank you so much, Rainier. Where can people find you? Head over to Instagram, Rainier Wild. Uh, I also have a website, RainierWild.com. You can find me there. But I hang around Instagram mainly, and I write a number of short essays almost every day. Um, <laughs> there and, yeah, I also have a forthcoming book, um, and I'm really excited about that. It's a collection of, of some of these short essays on selfing and relating. And that's going to be coming out very, very soon. I'm really, really excited about that. It's beautiful. Uh, a friend of mine uh, who's a tremendous artist 
collaborated with me on it uh, and created this beautiful visual and then uh, uh, written component as well to to illustrate these these things that I get to talk about and talk about with individuals. Incredible. I cannot wait to read it. Thank you so much once again. Thank you. That is the end of our episode, friends. Thank yourself and your soul for continuing to show up and tune in to Real Talk and Good Vibe podcasts like this. Don't forget, if you want exclusive access to the Soul Deeper sessions, click the link in the show notes below to become a Soul Deep patron and stay up to date with the show on Instagram. Until next time, remember you are a star wrapped in skin and nestled within your flesh and bones is everything that you need to feel.